Welcome back to another episode of Afghan Beyond Conflict. This series will be running throughout the month of February on Wednesdays and Saturdays at 6 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we will delve into the evolution of Afghan identity with our esteemed guests. To receive notifications and updates regarding the series, please follow our social media platforms. And if you any if you miss any of our episodes, please check them out on our YouTube channel. Today we will be in conversation with Professor Nazif Shahrani. Professor Shahrani was born, raised, and partly educated in Afghanistan. He is currently professor of anthropology, Central Asian and Middle Eastern studies, at the global at the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. He has conducted extensive ethnographic field research in Afghanistan and studied Afghan refugees communities in Pakistan and Turkey. Since the ouster of Taliban from power, he has regularly visited Afghanistan, publishing widely. His most recent books include Revolutions and Rebellions in Afghanistan, Anthropological Approaches, and uh, Modern Afghanistan, The Impact of 40 Years of War. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And thank you very much, uh, Ms. Khanum, for inviting me to be part of this uh, interesting program you have. And I'm at your service. It's our honor. Uh, Professor, as customary with this series, the first question that I would like to ask you is, what does it mean to you to be an Afghan? Well, as you know, um, identities are all uh, not substantive. You cannot tell them an Afghan means this. It's identities are all relational. That is, when you are in contact or in discourse with some someone else that's when the nature of identity comes into existence and also identity is a kind of a cultural tool that people uh, make use of it either for emotional purposes for affective purposes or they make instrumental uses of it when it's convenient to be somebody then people say and this that so forth Let me let me just tell you a little bit about my um, sort of identity or part of part of this complex of things that I am. One of them is Afghan. So I'm not Afghan all the time because there are there are a couple of things that 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 I need to say also about identities. That is, identities have two components. One is you're born with. It's so you sort of inherit. Uh, you have no choice. It's there. The other ones are acquired. That you uh, you know become a prof- choose a profession. You become a professional, a teacher, a professor, a, a physician, whatever the case may be. So, uh, national identity in the modern period is something I uh, suppose one could say you're born in, mm-hmm. but. You can also give it up. You can also so in, in acquire another one. People like me were binational, right? Um, we have two nationalities, as it were. So one of them I have acquired voluntarily. I, I wasn't born in the United States, but I was forced by circumstances when Afghanistan was not there for me to be had. That I, I needed to have another, you know, uh, passport. These are all new modern phenomena, as, as you know. When I first came to the United States at the age of maybe around 22 or so, I was junior in college in Kabul University. Uh, 
Um, in America, Afghan meant two things. One was a blanket, a particular kind of, you know, netted blankets that they here in the market they called it Afghan. The other one was a hound, a dog. Afghan. Uh, these are very long-legged sort of hunting dogs. Right. So, you know that that's when when uh, Americans heard of Afghan they probably thought one of those two things. And then they looked at me and I wasn't looking to, <laughs> like neither one of them. Right. So, so it's a question of, I think, you know, where you are. Afghan to me is a sort of imposed identity that we really had very little to do with its even formation. Uh, the, the country was essentially put together by outsiders, its entire map, its entire borders, not an inch of that was determined by Afghans or by people who lived in this country. It was all negotiated between the Tsarist Russians and British India, every inch of it. The northern, northern uh, borders of Afghanistan was entirely negotiated between Russia and uh, they demarcated, they have you know, all the signed papers and so forth. The Western part was negotiated between Iran and British India. And the Eastern part and Southern part, the Durand line, mm -hmm. that was carved out by the British themselves. And the little 70 kilometers or so that's, uh, you know, common with China in that panhandle, that, that was not even put on paper on, on formal basis until 1960s. So, you know, an and accident of birth is that I was born in that, in a village in northeastern part of this country. And being Afghan meant uh, nothing really. Afghan, in fact, when I was born and raised in, in this village in northeastern Afghanistan, as, as I was raising, I was uh, growing up meant Pashtuns. I wasn't in, I never thought myself as an Afghan. We were Uzbeks or Tajiks in the area. And when they talked about Afghans, it meant the Pashtun who came into the area, who were dominant political, you know, um, representatives of, you know, those who were ruling the country. So my notion of being an Afghan really did not happen until I came to Kabul to attend middle school, high school, and a couple of years of college. And there we were told that we are Afghans. So the way I think my Afghanness <coughs> uh, in, inside Afghanistan is really virtually non-existent. Because inside the country, it's not relevant. Um, because you, you don't, uh, relate to anyone else where being Afghan is important. Okay, there you are in Uzbek versus, uh, in my case, versus perhaps a Tajik, or a Hazara, or a uh, you know Baluch, or a Pashtun, uh, or our other identities from which province, from which part. Um, and, and those kinds of things. So really Afghan becomes significant or important or relevant once you have left the country. 
or when you're dealing with not with uh, people who are not part of the uh, you know community is such and and how we use that is again either affective or instrumental okay so it's a, it's our part of our cultural toolkit essentially how we make use of it when it is convenient, when we want to feel good and feel, you know, I, I, in the early years I was in the United States and I still, um, seeing an Afghan makes me, or someone from Afghanistan, not an Afghan, someone from Afghanistan makes me really feel good, excited. I want to know who they are, where they are, what, you know, all that sort of stuff. And when people talk to me, I, in the early years I jokingly would say, I'm an Afghan, but not a blanket or a hound. So just to just to you know create a, a sort of break, uh, and a lot of people then didn't even know where Afghanistan was. Now, of course, more than a million Americans have served in the country as soldiers alone, fighting for in the last twenty years, and probably half as much or as many have gone through is is civilians into the country. So that you run into in my classroom, I have uh, students who have served in Afghanistan in the military, or others who have been there for some, so, you know, the whole thing has changed, but also it has uh, um, the implication of, you know, a country at war, a country, you know, suffering, a country uh, misruled, corruption, all, all of those things are part and parcel of uh, sort of the notion of Afghan, unfortunately, these days. So that's the sort of my overall take on what Afghans, what Afghan means. Um, uh, uh, and it's again something that someone else named that place. Someone else defined the place, and they chose to use the name of one of the many um, groups of people who lived in that territory, and that was the Pashtuns. They because the British Indians were in contact with them for a very long time, so they knew them, and they uh, they were also uh, in the Afghan wars they uh, uh, perhaps confronted each other uh, in, in battlefields and they dealt with their, uh, you know, Hans and their rulers and so forth. Uh, they had their own very close connections, which uh, eventually uh, ended up being crystallized in the name of the country. And that's, as I'm sure others have also brought this up, it is a contentious identity in Afghanistan today. There is this insistence that everybody should call themselves Afghans, but within Afghanistan's context, others are saying that we're not. We are Tajiks, we are Heratis, we are uh, Turkestanis, we are Badakhshanis, we are Nuristanis. So there are all of these other things, and you know, and, and that it is a name of a particular group imposed on the rest. And that is creating uh, some kind of a tension within the society. And I'm sure you're aware it hasn't, it has come up that there is this insistence on the new identity card that government is issuing, that everybody should be, uh, uh, everybody's nationality should be referred to as Afghan. And people are saying, no, I should be, uh, you know, it, it's identity card of Afghanistan's people. It says Republic, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan on the top. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to nationality, I should be an Uzbek who lives in Afghanistan, a Tajik who lives in Afghanistan, or a Pashtun who lives in Afghanistan. 
instead of everybody being homogenized into this one name, Afghan. Now, I mean, there's quite a few questions actually I have regarding what you've just said. Now, the first one I think would be, like you've mentioned, Afghan, okay, granted, uh, you know, I guess pre-1960s, uh, you know, before we had sort of semi-solidified borders at least. And, you know, back then, okay, if, you know, you, Afghans and Pashtuns were synonymous of each other. And then, still are. Still uh -huh. are, uh, you know. But, I mean, I would say that a lot of people have also... I, I mean, I these are the Afghans that I've come across in, um, in the diaspora at least, mm -hmm. right? So um, whether... You know, when you ask someone where they're from, right? Like you said, you know, first is Afghan, then it's the ethnic identity, and this might be prevalent in the diaspora. I'm not so sure about Afghans in Afghanistan. But would you not? I can, say, I can assure you, inside yeah. Afghanistan, it's yeah. not that way. It's uh, so the, the structure of dyadic relationships are somewhat different. So, and Afghan, being Afghan is not that critical. So, how it's would you assume to be? Now, the a question that comes to my mind when I think about that is that it prevents sort of a unification within the country, um, you know, if the ethnic identity is prioritized. How is there any form of reconciliation then or any sort of way, you know, just so because it obviously bring, brings up contention, like you said, it's a contentious identity. How do we overcome that contention? Because it's what ultimately is leading to the conflict and the issues that are taking place within the government and the society itself. You see, the problem is not the name itself. Right. It's, it's how that name is being used in one of those two ways, affective fashion or instrumental fashion, right? What happens is that in Afghanistan, um, those who are, members of the Afghan or Pashtun community are considering themselves to have privileges that they don't want to be extended to others. There is this rank order in society that was created back in the 1880s, after 1880, 1880 to 1901, and then it continued, where basically even within Pashtun society, they had ranked those who were members of the royal family or sardars, and then you know you had people uh, below them in some kind of rank order and, and how much they drew from government treasury and what, what privileges they had in terms of access to land and water and um, you know goes on and on. And then others were excluded from those. Some of, some of these folks didn't have to pay taxes, didn't have to um, serve in the military but they could be officers, but not rank and file. And rank and file had to be from other communities. So uh, it's this kind of discriminatory practices that brings about disunity and tension and violence in society. Not the fact that uh, people are you know, uh, referred to as this or that. You remember in the Quran, it's very clear that, that um, cre Allah creates these differences of tribes and uh, people and so forth for what? To know each other. And the best of you are the ones who are the, the muttaqi, the ones who, who behave their best, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in practice, what happens is that 
we don't follow that. It's not a for the purpose of knowing each other. It's a for purpose of how can you instrumentally make use of your identity to get access to more strategic resources. So I know people who are not uh, Pashtun, but they, they, uh, they adopt in writing a Pashtun last name, adding a Zai. You know, uh, their name might be Murad. They'll, they'll, instead of ca calling themselves Murad, they say Murad Zai or Pupal Zai or, or things of that sort. Why? Because the assumption is that if your name can be identified with um, a group that claims privileges, maybe you will be given that privilege or at least you will not be denied something that you think is a is a member of the society as a whole you, you deserve and you should have so really it's not the question of um, uh, name is such when the names are being used as the basis or identities are being used as a basis for discriminatory um, dealing with each other that's the source of this unity afghanistan's uh, not having a national sense of you know uh, togetherness is not a product of uh, you know uh, there are different people living there in america different people are more different people are living and this is probably the most you know where i am in the last 50 years i've almost lived here this is far more diverse than afghanistan would ever become virtually every every ethnic group of Af from afghanistan has a member or members in the united states plus of course, the rest of the world. So here we're all Americans. Nobody is objecting to being an American. And being an American means that you're claiming equality with the rest of this society. We're all immigrants, we live here, and we're all Americans, and we are also um, subject to the same rules, the same constitution, the same laws, the same everything. But in places like Afghanistan, it is never so. And if you are Afghan or a Pashtun, then you have privileged position. For example, they have been consistently insisting that the head of the state should be one of them. You know, you, you know the, the story of the Bonn Agreement. Where you could tell, like, well, let me tell you what the story was, okay? Mm -hmm. I've heard it from the, from the mouth of people who were involved there. When the uh, gathering at Bonn happened, there had been some kind of informal division of which group. There were four groups represented. And they each, of course, claimed to represent certain portions of the country. One was the Northern Alliance. They had the larger share of the uh, representatives in Bonn. They had apparently decided that they, they can't or they don't want to have be the head of state. They just wanted key ministries like defense, interior, uh, economy, and, and you know, uh, so on and so forth. And then there was the uh, group referred to as the Rome, Rome group, which belonged to the king, the former king, King Zahir Shah, his representatives. And there were 14 of those. And apparently they had assigned that the king or the group, uh, king's group representatives should be uh, introducing the head of state from amongst themselves. And then there was a Peshawar group, which was really sort of um, Pashtun tribes from the east 
who had been left out and uh, Pakistanis essentially were uh, maybe pushing them into, into the front that they should be included. And then there was the Cyprus group, which was Iranian backed. Um, you know, this all uh, sort of proxy war and proxy politics that was going on. So the story is when the group of um, representing the king and the Rome group were asked to introduce one of themselves as head of state, the person who was heading that group was chairman of basically their 14 members in which Karzai was a member. He asks uh, Dr. Abdusattar Sirat, who lives here in the United States now, Sirat asks the king's grandson, Mustafa, who is with him, to please go and call your grandfather in Rome and get some instruction as to whether he wants to be the head of state or whether he uh, wants some other way we should introduce somebody. So Mustafa goes and talks to grandfather and grandfather comes and tells him, so he said he was not interested in being head of state himself. And that since the country was beginning a new democratic future, maybe the best thing would be to do this democratically. That is you 14 people elect one of your own to be introduced as head of state. And who is introduced? Who is elected? 12 people give their vote to Satar Sirat. And only one or two person, uh, including, of course, uh, Hamid Karzai to himself, because he had been already chosen by the United States, by CIA and everybody else that this was their man, and they wanted him. And Khalilzad objects because of what? What is, uh, what is wrong with Satar Sirat? He is not a Pashtun. He is an Uzbek who had spent all of his life serving the monarchy. He had, in fact, changed his own Uzbek name not to sound like an Uzbek. His name allegedly was uh, Satar Qul. And his father's name may have been Jabbar Qul. And that he had dropped the Qul part and added Abdus Satar and Abdul Jabbar so that people could not see that he is in Uzbek. But despite him having won 12 votes to be the head of the interim government, it was not acceptable to the Pashtuns. And Khalilzad and uh, Karzai and Ahmadzai and all of them essentially said, no, you're not acceptable because you're not, you're not Pashtun. So this is, this is the reality of Afghanistan, that no one else can have the privilege of heading that state, although we have had a couple of, you know, Burhanuddin Rabbani was for a while, it was a Tajik. Um, and that was not acceptable, and they fought against him. The entire, the entire time he was president, there was war against him by Hikmatyar for many years, and then after that by Taliban. And the only other instance in the history, in the last 140 years history of Afghanistan was the 1929, when another Tajik ruler um, from Kudaman, uh, Habibullah Kalakani, uh, was a ruler for nine months and that's it. So this is the total of our history. And um, those who are now in the ruling clique in Afghanistan, 
are still claiming that they are the privileged one to rule the country and they must enjoy um, this certain privileges. And the rest of the country are essentially um, in disbelief that in this day and age, in 21st century, our leadership would be insisting that their tribe, their ethnic group, their particular thing should have certain privileges that should be denied to the rest of the society. In America, um, you know, in practice it may be, but in reality it hasn't been. We have had even in a, a black or African-American president here. And we have had also, you know, Donald Trump. Um, but in Afghanistan, uh, the problem I think is not, you know, when, when they talk about national unity, national unity can be earned can be constructed when there is sense of equality and access to all privileges and re all resources um, on the same level without reference to anybody's identity. But that's what Afghanistan has lacked and that's what government systems in Afghanistan have basically resisted to create law and order and allow equality of everybody. So it's not because we're diverse, it's because we're treated differentially that is preventing us from becoming a nation like America. And that's a, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's, uh, I would, it's obviously it's something that has brought a lot of contention and it is, you know, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate you saying that basically it's, uh, you know, because we've had uh, both sides of the story so far, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, are providing another side of the story. So it's interesting to gain that insight. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially from your perspective as an anthropologist, right? right? And uh, which is, you know, your speciality. Mm -hmm. And you have worked in Afghanistan, uh, you know, as you said, as we said in our, your introduction, you've been back and forth. And, um, you know, and you've, I've noticed when I was reading that you've conducted extensive research on a particular group of people in the northern, uh, you know, oh, northern part, yes, northern eastern of Afghanistan. Could you comment on their role and what like interesting findings that you must have found. And there's a very, there's a term that actually the first time I came across was a native anthropologist. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and can you tell me about your experiences as a native anthropologist and you know, um, what that means and uh, how has that helped you with your research? Good of you to ask that. In fact, yesterday I spent an hour and a half to uh, participating or visiting a graduate seminar in anthropological methods here in the in, in um, uh, at Indiana University, my mm -hmm. colleague was teaching the course. Had used. I have a very long article on um, published back in 1996, I think. Uh, it is on how I became native anthropologist. Right. And it has a it has a very challenging sort of um, uh, theme about it. Because in the uh, until about 1980s, anthropology, as you know, is a colonial uh, subject. Right. It 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 was created by colonialist powers, uh, a science essentially, to learn about people that they were um, under their control, that they wanted to govern them better, they wanted to control them better with the least cost. 
So social anthropology in, uh, was in the service of British India. And then French had their own and, you know, Italians and all of them anyway. So this is the nature of thing. And, and it was defined is the study of others by the white man, by the white European and American uh, people going and studying others. So when others begin to, after in the 1960s and 1970s, independence and all the rest, that they get into academia, they begin to study this field of, um, you know, uh, social sciences. So what happens is that you are now um, studying, you are the other, but the other who is, who is coming and learning the science of this. And now you are in a sort of an ambiguous situation. Are you a native informant or you are an anthropologist? And this is where the thing is that my argument uh, has been that my being from Afghanistan, and there are now hundreds of us, thousands of us actually in the field. Anthropology is a very large field in, in the United States. Our association has more than 10,000 members. And I'm sure a whole bunch of them are people like me who have come from the former colonies and former this and that. And, uh, so that we're sort of uh, arguing in the, in the late 1980s when people you know, this, this uh, development of modernism and postmodernism and, you know, what is the role of um, uh, people like us who go into other communities and uh, spend a long time and learn the language and do this, or the white man used to do that anyway. Um, and they, they bring and write about them and they pretend that they're objective. They're, they are, uh, you know, what they say is the truth is they observed in this road. But by 1980s, people were questioning this assumption that there is any objectivity in people who go to other places and you know learn the language half-baked and, and all the rest. And what about people who actually learn the science, but also know the language and also have um, insights into their own cultures that outsiders can never you know, acquire? The, the whole the whole argument of anthropology was or anthropologists west white western anthropologists who went was that they became natives they came to see the perspective of the natives and they were speaking for them so now you have these people who are actually from there who have also acquired the same skills that they have but they also go and produce knowledge about themselves and my challenge has been not where I studied, that is where I did research. My challenge was where I studied anthropology and where I'm working as an anthropologist. That here I have been continuously treated as the other, hmm. despite my skills, knowledge, and, and so forth. I'm still being sort of uh, treated as other. So I'm, uh, there are two fields, in other words field of research, field the place where people do research. There I was the honored guest. While the white man who went there, they were the marginal man. They were considered marginal natives. So it's a reversal. 
I come, uh, go there I, and treat it as an honored guest. I collect the information. I write. I come and talk and teach. And when I'm here in the classroom or outside in the in with my colleagues, I'm I'm treated still is a marginal person because I'm not like one of them. I'm not like them. So that's the challenge of, of you know, being native. I think uh, native anthropologists, native scholars, native sociologists, native, uh, that means you know, people from our part of the world who have um, essentially gone through the academy of European you know, universities or, or American universities. They have gotten the credentials. They write authoritatively about their own societies. Um, they complement. I think it's a complementary task. I don't think it should be just one or the other. But uh, you know, the, I, the important thing is that we have to realize the complementarity of our uh, contribution to knowledge and understanding and unpacking the complexity of human social life. Why are we so different in different places? How did we change? How did we get where we are? These are the sort of key questions that anthropologists have been uh, grappling with, and I think. Um, people like me who are from uh, another part of the world um, have uh, something to say that is they can speak on behalf of their own people just as author authoritatively or in some instances even more authoritatively than a white man or a white woman who has gone and, and, and done the same thing in those areas. So that's the sense in which I'm, I'm referring to is the native anthropologist. Um, that uh, we we have um, very 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 competent people. I don't know if you have heard of uh, Talal Assad. Yes. Uh, you know Talal is uh, the son of uh, Assad who, who did the tafsir of Quran, mm -hmm. uh, and you know his mother is uh, from Saudi Arabia, but his father was a German journalist who converted to Islam, and Muhammad Assad, who even uh, had a role in the in representing Pakistan. In its earliest formation, so we have lots of lots of famous actually anthropologists who are, uh, from the Muslim world as well as Indians. I mean, we have we have lots of Indian um, scholars who are first rate, uh, and and those are native anthropologists. They they there there was a lot of literature produced. My article was one of the you know uh, small things that I I got done in in the 1990s, sort of reflecting on. Um, my experience with the Kyrgyz, this group of Kyrgyz that I studied in the northeast, in the panhandle, sort of points towards China. Right. This is an area of uh, where people lived above 14,000 feet altitude. It's the top of the mountains. It's called Roof of the World. I spent about 20, 21 months doing research there in 1972-74. And of course, there are, the, there are people who are Turkic-speaking, they are Sunnis, and they were uh, neighbors of the Wahi, who also occupy northern parts of Pakistan, Gilgit, Chitral, these areas, and then across Afghanistan and across the river in Tajikistan. So I studied both the Wahi and the Kyrgyz because they were um, intimately uh, connected with one another in terms of their economics, particularly. One was agricultural, one was herding and so forth. So uh, I have a book and a, there is a documentary and a whole bunch of articles about them. But they were the first of the uh, uh, Afghanistani population who left the country as a whole, as a group, and became refugees in northern Pakistan. They lived, the Kyrgyz did. Right, okay. 
and um, I, I went there actually one year after they had, they left. Um, the communist coup happened in April, right, 1978. They left in July, August, the country. So very early. What and were the specifics, if you don't mind me asking, of triggering that uh, migration? The reason was they had been running from communism. Right, okay. So their, their ancestors had run away from Ush region in modern-day Kyrgyzstan uh, when Bolshevik revolution happened. Right. Okay, so they had come to, uh, this area was their summer pastures. Okay. They, this area of Pamir, was where they sort of came during the summer, spent the summer, and then went back in the fall to lower altitudes, warmer climes, and so forth. But once the Bolshevik Revolution happened, they came and took refuge in the Safwan two valleys, Little Palmyra and the Great Palmyra Valley. And then they had another encounter with Russians after, during the World War II, actually, they were being aggressive. They thought the Russians were busy in the war in the West. Now they were going to do something and go maybe, you know, breach the uh, borders and go and get something from them. Mm -hmm. So they had retaliated and then they run over to China, the Chinese territory. So they lived there for a few years until Mao came. So China took over that area mm -hmm. and became common. So they run back into Afghanistan. By this time, the Kabul regime was willing to claim them and provide some kind of protection, protection for them until 1978. So when the third communist encounter happened, they knew. They, in fact, the Khan, the, the chief of Kyrgyz, sent one of his sons, his oldest son, to Badakhshan, to Faisalabad, mm -hmm. go check out, see what they are. He came back and said this was a communist coup. And uh, the father essentially decided that, that this is time for him to leave. So he tells his people, you stay. I'm in danger. I want to go. And the people say, hey, if you go, we go. So the whole lot of them then go into Gilgit, Honza area. And I uh, got there, uh, I think, the year, one year after they had, they had been already there. And uh, I found them in disarray, uh, essentially. Nobody had, uh, they were uh, suspected by ISI, by government, by everybody, because they don't look like the Afghans they knew. Afghans they knew were all Pashtuns. Right. And all of a sudden, this group of people whose language is different, they look very different, they're Asiatic and so forth. So they're suspicious. Who has sent them? And they, for a year, they did nothing for them. So they essentially sold all of their herds and fed themselves in that situation. Um, so when I was there, I wrote um, a report about what, who they are, what they are. I took it to UNHCR in Islamabad. Fortunately, UNHCR then uh, went and created a camp for them. They lived for another three years there, and then they were able to be relocated in eastern Turkey. And in fact, just a few hours, uh, it uh, was at 10 o'clock uh, our time, I was on a Zoom meeting with 51 of them in Turkey. So they're thriving in, in, in Turkey. They, you know, they have never had school. They never had any privileges, any, any resources. In Turkey, they have been given plenty of land. A whole new village was built for them. And within one year, every adult was actually literate, man and woman.
in Turkey, in modern Turkish, because the language is close enough. See, they have right. Turkish uh, quickly, and now they are they have professors, they have um, surgeons, you name it, everybody. I don't know, at least maybe ten PhDs from amongst you know the, the younger generation who are in Turkey. So that's you know that also shows the human potential that we we are losing by not serving their needs. When they have opportunity, they glow. <clears throat> and Kyrgyz certainly have shown that uh, so much talent from amongst them had been lost all these years doing nothing but shepherding on top of this for God forbidden mountain. And it would be due to the government's failing to provide for their needs and, uh, and you know, allowing them to integrate. Absolutely. Into absolutely. Who else? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, in modern era, governments in traditionally, historically, in our part of the world, right. uh, were not uh, essentially responsible for anything other than control and other than extraction. They were taking things from people and keeping them in check. That was it. But since World War II and the rise of so-called modern nation states, uh, the governments are now have responsibilities as well, is the rights. And part of that responsibility was to provide healthcare, provide um, uh, education, provide communication and infrastructure. And so nothing was done for these people, nothing. In fact, they couldn't even send government officials in the area. They were given the uh, task of protecting Afghanistan's border against Soviet Union in the, in the area that uh, there was contact. You couldn't find a single government soldier in there. Yet that, that uh, area was protected and also against China. Uh, Pakistan was less of an issue because the, the mountain ridges are very, very high. It's impenetrable to some extent, with the exception of a couple of spots from which they can, um, you know, make uh, some kind of access either to, to the Pamir or to Pakistani side. But the uh, Chinese side was part of the cell crowd. This is a Wahjir Pass. It's 16,000 something feet high. And, you know, people went through a great deal. The, the Russian side was, the Soviet side was actually just wide open. You could, you could just go. So uh, they were left there. Come on. No, no schools, no, no clinics, nothing, no road. When I was doing my research, I had to take a, a trucks. Uh, to Khandud um, you know, or Kalaipanja, the most. In fact, I never went to Kalaipanja by, by uh, uh, vehicle. And then I had to rent horses and get on horseback and, and travel for another five, six days to get to the point where I did my, my field work and research. Are there other refugee groups that you might have studied in Pakistan as well? Well, I spent a lot of time actually in the 1980s in Pakistan and uh, refugee camps in, um, in Chetral, uh, refugee camps around um, uh, Peshawar, Kuhat, um, uh, even Baluchistan, because I did, I, I was studying uh, the uh, Mujahideen uh, resistance right. uh, issues. And so that the way to do that was so to do it through these refugee camps. I even served six months actually in, in 1989 
uh, is uh, advisor to the late uh, President Rabbani, is his, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, counselor, I mean, uh, aid of sorts in um, how to uh, manage this uh, aid, uh, uh, international assistance, because there are all kinds of things being done and there was no coordination. I helped them actually create a coordinating body, which then became another NGO, unfortunately. And so, yes, I was involved with, with uh, resistance, both of uh, uh, resistance, uh, uh, most of my publication, including the book that you referred to, uh, Revolutions and Rebellions, mm. uh, which is an edited volume of anthropologists at the time when they had studied Afghanistan, uh, is about resistance um, and, and the jihad and its uh, consequences, both in the 1990s and then since the American intervention. Could you tell us of some notable points from that, um, from those findings, like your time during that time, especially with the Mujahideen and resistance that was taking well, place? I think the highlights that one can uh, yeah. um, uh, sort of mention is that the Islamic is resistance movement in Afghanistan was a popular movement, it's indigenous movement. It started from ground up. Uh, people who uh, knew about, uh, you know, earlier Soviet um, atrocities in Central Asia. You remember Central Asia had about half a million refugees, Uzbeks and Tajiks primarily, who had crossed the Oxus River into northern Afghanistan. And that in the 1920s, during the Monolos period, they were waging jihad from Afghan side against the Soviet Union. But Amanullah did not allow them to do that except for the first year, two years, 1921-22, by 22, Russians, the Soviets had basically put pressure on him and he had brought the Amir of Bukhara and imprisoned him, really house arrest, in a, in a uh, fort, uh, fort outside of Kabul. And uh, then um, uh, during that nine month of civil war, uh, when Kalakani was the ruler of Afghanistan, they were allowed, they were encouraged to wage jihad against the Russians. And they started. And then when Nader Khan came, they overthrew Nader Khan came. Nader Khan was responsible for defeating the Islamic resistance of Central Asian people. Uh, he sent essentially um, Pashtuns from the uh, Northwest frontier area into the North and Russians give them weapons, give them money, and the British had done too. And they put a price on the head of Muslim jihadi fighters in northern Afghanistan. And there's documentation on that, that anybody who delivered a, 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 a skull, the head of a human being with less facial hair, because the Uzbeks in some Tajiks are considered to be uh, with less beard, that they give them cash money. And they drove the Muslim Mujahideen across the river. Russians took them and, and slaughtered them. Uh, Ibrahim Beik Lakai, one of the jihadi leaders, was hanged in 1931 in Tashkent because Afghan government drove these Muslim Turks, uh, Uzbeks and Tajiks across the river. Now, if somebody could imagine that, uh, if Pakistanis had done that to the Afghans, in the 1980, uh, 1980s, what would have happened? The Afghan Jihad would have no possibility of success against the Russians. 
none. So the defeat of Mujahideen of Central Asia fighting against Bolsheviks in northern Afghanistan was in the hands of the Afghan government. They defeated them, they killed them, they drove them back. So just coming back to the 1980s in the beginning of what, uh, what Afghan jihad was, that, that it was um, indigenous and that they had a refuge in Pakistan. And thank God, and Pakistanis did enormous service to the people of Afghanistan by allowing them a place of refuge. Nobody drove them out. Nobody uh, was hostile to them. They welcomed them. They did all kinds of wonderful things. But what happened in the process was that that indigenous movement was essentially appropriated by outsiders to their own benefit. Americans came in. And um, Pakistan, the al-Haq, uh, of course, during his own reign to, um, you know, uh, promote his own misrule in Pakistan, took advantage of that. Eventually, the resistance that was truly popular became a, a tool, an instrument. It turned into a tool or an instrument of Cold War. And then we kept losing. So the, uh, they, they did not allow a single coordinated uh, resistance movement. Instead, they divided it into seven groups and they would not allow, for example, Uzbeks to have any kind of organization in Pakistan. The, they also only allowed one Tajik organization, the Jamiat, and they not, six of them were all Pashtun dominated or Pashtun organizations. So these are the divisions that, that came to be created by uh, Pakistan in particular, ISI, but also it was supported by uh, America in, in the West, that they funded it. So we, and at the end, as you know, in Geneva Accords, uh, Mujahideen were denied even their presence in the negotiation. Pakistanis negotiated for them with Americans and then the Kabul regime with, uh, with Soviets. And uh, so, you know, the rest, you can see that, that this had a very, very negative impact in, in creating a sense of division, disunity, lack of a sense of nationhood, a lot of wars. Wars generally are said to be creating nations, but in Afghanistan, it destroyed instead of building because this was a war that was completely funded and directed and run by outsiders, not by Afghans themselves. So Afghans were basically the instruments of killing each other, not producers of means of uh, resistance. They didn't uh, make a single bullet. They, they, and everything, everything was given to them. And they consume it. They were consumers of war, not in fact, uh, you know, doing much of anything. And the consequences of all of that has continued after the, um, you know, uh, Soviets were de defeated and defeated not by us. We had a, a role to play, but in, in fact, it was uh, Western uh, Americans in Saudis who built, uh, you know, in the tune of $10 billion, the war effort, which drove the Soviets out. And then the outcome was another disaster. They succeeded militarily, but failed politically miserably. And uh, Taliban came, and since then, you know, you know the rest of the story. Yeah.
No, I mean, thank you so much for that insight. We've covered so many broad topics, and this is usually the time in the series where we basically give the mic to yourself and, uh, you know, make any concluding remarks that you would like to on the broad topic that we have uh, in our hands today. So please, the floor is yours. Well, all I want to say is since the topic was identity mm -hmm. of um, the meaning of Afghan, um, identities, generally speaking, are just a means of um, a means of creating meaning. Really, language is nothing but creation of meaning. You remember the story in the Quran uh, when um, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala creates Adam and uh, asks, you know, uh, the uh, malaik that is going to create this new creation. And they're saying, no, we are doing all of your bedding. Why is going to you know, shed blood and do this and do that. So Allah says, you know, I know things you don't know. And what is that things that Allah SWT knows and they don't? Gives Adam the potential for being able to name things. Allah teaches them names of things, which really means Allah uh, to the first human beings who came to have consciousness who came to have the ability to choose between this or that, right or wrong. So uh, it, it comes through language, okay? Language is the means. Language is the first thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala endows human beings with to distinguish them from all the rest of the creature. So that's the beginning of identity, that things come to have identity of their own. The tree becomes tree in English language and maybe darakht uh, in Persian and shajara in Arabic and so forth, whatever. It's not the what specifics, but, but the whole point. So identity starts, identity is the beginning of uh, assigning meaning to phenomena around and about us. If that's the case, then why are we abusing it in terms of evaluating each other? It was not about evaluation of ranking, who is better, who has access to more or less. The politicization of identities, which is part and parcel of the institution of modern nation state, a poisonous uh, um, uh, institution that the West, the colonial powers came in, imposed on the rest of the world. This is the most powerful poison that they have spread. And it's this institution of modern nation state which is the cause of politicization of identities. That by naming country like Afghanistan, Afghanistan after one group, and then making sure that there are a lot of other groups are in there, which has served their purpose all along. But we're the ones who don't realize it and we suffer because of our ignorance of how this particular um, uh, you know, uh, idea has been instrumentally used against us to subjugate us, to enslave us, to destroy us, to, to deny our dignity. And we become part and part of this, this miserable game that others have, have, uh, have been playing with us for a long time. So my plea with my own countrymen is that we uh, accept our differences, cultural differences, but we should um, 
insist on our equality politically. In, in political terms, we should be all brothers and sisters, Muslims, human beings uh, who deserve to be enjoying the same rights and privileges. But culturally, we should allow the differences that define us is human beings with their own characteristics. So tolerance, not just tolerance, really acceptance and celebration of differences culturally and insisting on treating each other equally in political terms is what we need for the future. If we want to create uh, an Afghanistan that has national identity, that people are proud to be a member of that society um, and, and have nothing to, to, to sort of complain about. That's the thing that, that we have to aspire. And unfortunately, leaders of Afghanistan, particularly from those who have been running the country, and I'm not saying that this is a, this is a categorical problem. It's a problem of a very small minority of elite, the power elite, who are always in league with outsiders. They, they, they create these rented regimes. They are rented because they get the money and the weapons and everything else and they use that against their own people like it happened in the 1880s. And then they abuse their own people. And that's our tragedy. So we need to realize this, this uh, and, and try to come up with ways that we can in fact, heal our society and um, gain our dignity. This is, this, you know, dependency is the worst form of loss of one's dignity. And we are, we have become dependent society completely for the last 140 years. And it has gotten worse every year. Today, we're, we're more dependent on America and, and the international community in Afghanistan than we were 20 years ago or um, 40 years ago, uh, even even uh, less dependent uh, we were compared to uh, where we are today. So that's that's my story for, for you. No, that's a very powerful note to end on. I thank you so much, Professor, for your incredible insight on a very broad range of topics, but very useful nonetheless. And I would like to thank our audience uh, for watching. Please join us for another episode this Wednesday at the same time, where we'll be in conversation with award-winning journalist Khojasta Samii. Thank you so much to everybody on behalf of Identity International. Okay, thank you to you, Ms. Ba, and also to everyone who is... Uh, has spent the time to listen to us either live or will be listening later through recorded uh, sessions. Definitely. I appreciate it. It, it, was, it was very uh, nice to be with you. I'm glad and likewise, Professor.